0: Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glor on Amazon Prime Video.
1: From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this radio show, and in this hour from the Englert Theater in Iowa City, in cooperation with Iowa Public Radio, we bring you a Moth Main Stage event. The theme of the evening was Heart of Darkness, and we'll open with a short true story told by the host of the evening, Peter Aguero. Peter is an instructor for the Moth Community and Education Program and a frequent Moth
2: host. The sky was clear and the sun is shining. It's hot and there are lots of people and voices and music and noise. It's a beautiful day at the New York Renaissance Fair. I just finished uh, selling a $400 gold dragon ring to a wizard from Hoboken. And uh, my boss said I could take a break, so I went uh, into the back room. I started to make myself a sandwich, and there's almost nothing more celebratory than a perfect sandwich. So I was putting the turkey just right, and the lettuce, a little slice of onion, the tomato cut just perfectly, a little bit of dressing, put it together, a little pressure just so everything comes together, and I was going to let it sit for a minute because, you know, you got to let everything marry. And just then my wife comes into the back of the booth and she looks beautiful. She's got this uh, long purple and black skirt and it's got dust all around the bottom and she's got big plume of feathers in her hair and uh, a, a bodice. Uh, so everything is, is, is like, <laughs> is real nice. And, uh, but she's got a, a, a strange look on her face. I say, I say baby, what's wrong? And uh, she's, nothing, nothing. What's wrong? Nothing. She starts to cry. I say, baby, what's wrong? And so she tells me. uh, She was over uh, at a a cart that we also have where we sell jewelry uh, over by the jousting arena. And uh, (laughs) while she was over there, she's very friendly. She talks to everyone. She loves to speak in an accent. She does all that stuff. This guy comes up to her and says, hey, do you want to see some pictures? And she says, sure. And he, he shows her on the back of his digital camera. He starts flipping through the pictures, and they're uh, like grainy, odd pictures of a, of a, a woman uh, in a bathtub. It didn't happen at the Renaissance Fair. And she, she wasn't, it, it, it just, immediately she froze. And this guy goes, hey, can I have a hug? And she just runs away. And she comes over. And, and I'm like, baby, it's okay. I hug her. And I'm like, it's not your fault. This, is, this isn't your fault. Don't worry. You're okay. You're safe. Everything's fine. It's not your fault. So uh, I go to find my buddy Sean, who works uh, for security at the fair, and I'm looking all over the place for him. I find him over by the human chessboard, and he's a big dude. And he's got a kilt on and a big orange, like puffy shirt. It says, you know, "Ye old security," and and I tell him what happened, and and he radios uh, his other guys on his team, and and you know they want to be on the lookout for this guy. He's like, "All right, don't you know? It's okay. Just take care of Sarah. It'll be all right." So I go back to the booth, I tell my boss, uh, you know, that I'm going to go work at the cart, you know, and so I had given Sarah my sandwich because I'm a good husband and so I made another sandwich to take on the road and so we get down there and uh, it's just, it's just bonkers. There's all just all these people all over the place and, and I'm just scanning the crowd and I feel my heart beating and I'm starting to get angry uh, and, and there's like a little bit of like a flutter in my stomach because I know that it's coming. I, I, I'm not an angry guy, it took me a long time. I, was, I grew up with a bad temper and a bad house and it took me a lot of years and a lot of meditation and a lot of other things to uh, calm myself down and I, I've gotten a hold on it. I, when I was younger I played football but I stopped playing football because it was too violent I did musicals instead uh, just it was that, that sort of I'm, I'm just I don't like the feeling of fighting I've, I've been in, in it doesn't matter maybe six fights in my life doesn't matter how many I've won all of them but like <laughs> after every single fight I would cry every time because it just it's an ugly feeling because you're out of control so uh, my you know my buddy comes up to me and he says hey listen we're still looking for this guy we got reports that he'd been doing it to other people including some like young girls so now we're really looking for him if you see him Pete don't do anything and I was like all right man okay no problem so the the five o'clock joust is over uh, spoiler alert Robin Hood won he always wins every every day and. Uh, the queen fell off her horse and then she sword fight. It's, it was, it was pretty intense. Uh, and, and so the crowd is, is, is filing out and, and there I'm like the, the T-1000. I'm just like looking around at the crowd, just scanning and scanning. And then I see him. <clears throat> I said, baby, is that him? And she just says, Peter, don't do anything. And she goes and hides. And now I'm pissed <laughs> off because she was having a great day. She was doing this thing that she loves to do. we have been working at that fair for years. Her mother married a guy named Pepe who makes amulets. It's, that's a long story. But, like, this was, she, she loved doing this. It, it was a fantasy world, and she enjoyed it. And this guy stole it from her, and he stole it from her. No one has the right to do that to anyone else on a beautiful day. So I, I walk toward him and the rest of the crowd disappears. It's just me and him. And he's got like a, his hair's a little too long in the back. He's got a Budweiser t-shirt with no sleeves, jean shorts. And I'm, I'm just going toward him and I get right in his face. And I, and I just, he looks up at me, uh, askance. And I say, uh, show me the pictures. And he, he says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And I lean in and I say, show me the pictures you showed my wife. And now the flutter is starting to tremble because I can feel myself get out of control and I'm scared. And he says, "I, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, show me the pictures you showed my wife. And he just said, no, man, get out of my way. And I leaned down and I get in his face and I'm so close, our noses are touching. I can feel and smell the fear coming out of his mouth. It smells like old copper. And I get real close and I say, I'm gonna kill you in front of all these people. I'm gonna dig my fingers into your throat and I'm gonna rip it out in front of all these people. And he's terrified. And now mind you, I'm wearing these breeches and a big blue shirt and this hat with like a flower garland on it and these (laughs) horns. It's absurd, completely absurd. (laughs) And he just says, he says two words. He just looks up at me and he goes, Please, please don't. And I feel myself, I see in the future 15 seconds where I'm just throttling this guy in front of Children and Robin Hood and the Queen and everybody and, and just then here comes the security they come bounding out of the woods and they're like oh we got it we got it it's fine and then the cops are there and, and I step back and my buddy pushes me say, he's like you're alright man it's alright it's alright and the cops handcuff this guy and they're pulling him out and he's like I want to press charges he threatened me he threatened me I want to press charges and the cops stop and they say okay you can press charges but we're going to give him 15 minutes alone with you in the woods first so he can earn them <laughs> And he's like, I don't want to press charges, and, he, and they they take him out of there. So I'm over there on the side, and I'm just breathing heavy, and I'm just trembling, and I'm going crazy because this monster, this thing that took me my whole life to to kind of put a leash on, is now unleashed inside of me, and I can't control it. And and uh, you know, my buddy in security comes over, and he, and he just he hugs me. He's like, All right, you did. It's all right, man. It's okay. Go take care of Sarah. She needs you right now. You did a good job. So I walk over and I sit down on this rock and Sarah comes over and she sits behind me and she throws her arms around me and I start to cry because I hate that feeling and I don't want it to come up anymore. And she just holds me as I'm crying and she says, "'Baby, it's okay, it's not your fault. You're all right. Everything's okay.'" Welcome to The Moth at the Engler Theater. How you doing, Iowa City? Thank you so much. You guys are beautiful. Thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, this is uh, The Moth. So uh, when I asked our next storyteller, uh, you know, what, what is it that turns you into a madman that needs to be stopped? He, he said uh, it was uh, clickbait posts on Facebook. So uh, <laughs> listen to this story and at the six minute mark, something's gonna change your life. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jim Bennett.
3: We're both taller. Uh, so I was part of the team that brought marriage equality to Iowa, and I, um, I love Iowa. And I work for Lambda Legal, and we we like to think of ourselves sort of as the gay mafia, and the, and we're just bringing the gay agenda of civil rights, and we and we do it through our work in the courts. And we we knew back about in early 2003 or 4, that it was really Iowa that could deliver marriage equality and bring it to the Midwest. It had only been in the coast up till then. And Iowa has this incredible history of civil rights that you may be aware of. It's it's the first state in the north where if a slave made it here, they were free. It's the first uh, uh, state that allowed a woman to be a lawyer and be part of the Iowa Bar. They desegregated the schools a hundred years before Brown versus Bornevad. Uh, and so we felt good about the courts, but we also need to win in the court of public opinion. And uh, apparently there's a conservative element is here as well. And, uh, and so my job is is to develop these field campaigns and work throughout the state and have town halls and really talk to anyone that will talk to us about why marriage equality is awesome and ultimately to convince at least 51% of Iowa that it's perfectly Iowan for gays and lesbians to be getting married, uh, and so we began our efforts. And and I would go around, and I was assigned mostly to the west side of Iowa originally. And so I would go. <laughs> We're everywhere, um, but they would. And so I, we would have these town halls, and you know, Iowans have a thirst for knowledge. They just they want to know everything going on. So we would get both sides, and the opposition would come out just as strong as people that were for us or trying to figure it out. But they're Iowans, so they would, they would bring hateful signs, but they wouldn't hold them up when I was speaking because <laughs> that would be distracting. And they, and they wouldn't yell over me because they did want to be respectful because that's the Iowan way. And so um, we, we moved forward, and one of the um, comments that we would hear over and over is, if you really want the hearts and minds of Iowans, you need to ride Ragbri." And uh, for the maybe one person here who's chosen to visit Iowa in the dead of winter, uh, Ragbri is the Des Moines Register's annual great bike ride across Iowa. And it starts at the Missouri River, and it ends at the Mississippi, and it's seven days of riding through um, corn and, uh, and eating your way through. And in fact, on the official Rag Bride jersey, it had a giant picture of an apple pie. Um, rarely, um, do you see that on a bike uh, jersey? And, and, they, um, and then at night, you, you pull into these small towns, and they really roll out the carpet for you, and all of the churches compete by having these big church dinners, and that's their fundraiser for the year. And uh, so in April 2009, we win the case, and we're, we're going to do a, a team. So we formed Team Lambda Legal, because if you're on a team, it's easier to register and get in, and it's a little cheaper. Um, and we, so we get, our, we get our team together. We design these beautiful jerseys, because we're gay, so they're stylish and awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and I even convinced my partner, Terry, who does not enjoy sweating or athletic things, to, um, to join us. But he's really more about the food than he is about celebrating equality. But whatever, he's going to be with us. <laughs> and so we, we begin the ride. And I was a little nervous, but I had to say everything went great. Like, people were so wonderful to us. And couples would come up and tell us about... Um, getting married or that they were going to get married, and people would congratulate us on, on the victory. And, and we certainly had people that were not so excited about marriage equality coming to Iowa, but the worst they could muster is sort of a look of stern disapproval, and I can deal with that. That's what my friends and um, people closest to me look at me like that all the time. So... <laughs> we we begin the ride and you immediately sort of settle into this routine and Terry and I our routine would either be stopping to eat food or talking about what we would be eating at night and so on the last third we would begin the last third of the ride we'd begin just talking about where we're going to eat or what we were going to have and on one day which is the century which is the longest day over 100 miles uh, we were literally starving and <laughs> There's this sign that just appeared, like out of a like a mirage, that said "20 miles until ham balls," and <laughs> ham. This is ham as in pig, not hand. Ham balls. And Terry, who loves meat, is just like, "Oh my God, this is perfect. This is exactly where we're gonna go. Ham balls." And I just smiled and hoped that he would forget it. But in my back of my mind, I knew this would be my destiny. And five miles later, we see another sign, 10 miles to ham balls. And again, Terry is like, I love ham, I love balls, like this is gonna be incredible. And so I, uh, so I give in because I, I know it's gonna happen anyway and I don't have any other idea. But then five miles later, we see another sign, and it's, you know, it's ten or five miles to handballs. But this sign was different because it had the location, and the location was this evangelical Lutheran church. <laughs> and I, I should point out that the Lutherans usually love the gays. Like, they marry us, and they think we're awesome, and we play in their um, organ in the church. And But and this was the, this church was a little bit different, and we knew them because they had been posting signs along our route of fetuses in different stages of formation. And the fetuses would have thought bubbles over their head and those thought bubbles would be thinking things like, I hope my first bike is red, or um, I can't wait till my dad takes me on my first bike ride. And one of the little fetuses had a teeny little helmet on to teach us about bicycle safety. And, we, we all just found this completely outrageous because it's like that fetus has a million other things to be thinking about right now. I mean, it's dividing and, and whatever. So I had to break the news to Terry that we could not go to um, this church, that so there were plenty of, of good churches that we would, we'd be able to go to, but you're not going to have handballs. And... Uh, Terry was completely nonplussed. He's like, I'm going to, I have to have handballs. I love handballs. I'm going to have a handball. And so I, I reluctantly agreed, but I, I told him, look, like, we are not telling anyone on the team that we have gone to this church. Like, we are going to tell him that we went to the Unitarian church and had the spaghetti supper. Unitarians accept everyone. And, uh, and, uh, he agreed. And so we're fine. And we get to the church and, uh. We pay our money and then we start going down these basement stairs, and it hits me like we are going to be trapped in a basement with a lot of conservative evangelical Lutherans. And so I grab Terry and I tell him, "Do not talk to anyone. Just get in there, eat your handball, and get out. Like we're going." <laughs> and uh, so he agrees, and we get we get in line, and you know you get your uh, plastic utensils that are rolled up in a napkin, and your plastic or your uh, little plate and then they just start piling on green beans from a can and then these cheesy scalloped potatoes and then these balls, these like, and they're about the twice the size of a meatball and the cook told us that they're exactly like meatloaf except instead of hamburger it's ham and instead of saltines it's graham crackers and instead of a loaf it's sort of a circular formation. And, and they have this sort of shellac red sauce, so it's, it's exactly like meatloaf. And uh, so I take one, because I'm very polite, and then Terry fills up his whole plate. And we go off into this sort of corner of the church that's empty, and within just a minute or two, four women, who I assume are from the church, join us. And they're in a really pretty heated discussion about these handballs. So, that one is concerned that they're too fibrous, and one feels that they switched the recipe because apparently Iowa has an official handball recipe. And uh, and they're going back and forth, and Terry is immediately engaged. And so he begins asking them uh, if you could put cheese on the handball and what the recipe is and how is it different from the official one. And so, of course, they love us. And so they start asking us questions like, uh, how do we like the ride? And where are we from? And then of course, what team are we on? And then I look over at Chatty Terry, and now he's just looking down at his plate and rolling his handball with her fork. <laughs> and so I just said, Lambda Legal. We're, we're on Team Lambda Legal. And it was greeted with this painful silence. And then one of the women, um, to make things feel better, I guess, starts just talking about the silverware. And so she starts saying, you know, this is really unusual. It's it's actually silver, and usually it's white or sometimes lucite. And I would think it was real silverware, but you can tell from the weight that it's not. It's very light. And uh, And so it was worse than the silence. And so I finally just say... I start to explain what Lambda Legal is and what we fight for and then the woman interrupts me again and says, oh, we know who you are. (laughs) And I I look over at Terry and he he just had his horrible sad face and there is nothing worse than that horrible sad face. And he's grabbing his handballs and he's looking for the nearest exit. (laughs) And I honestly felt like I just wanted to die because we had been on this for years, and things have gone so well, and it was just this great moment of victory. And then all at once, we're sort of all back to the beginning. And I, I, uh, I, I just wanted to leave, but I, I kept thinking, this, this is my job, and this is why we're here, and it's an important cause. And so, I begin to sort of make the case for marriage, and uh, and why this matters. And the woman interrupts me again and says oh, you know what, we're fine with gay marriage. This church is crazy. We're just here for the balls. And that, and that is Iowa. You know, you, can, you cannot separate a fine Iowa cuisine from a fine history of civil rights. And, uh, and the honest truth is Iowa changed, it's a game changer. It changed everything. It, I mean, when you look at it, we've, we've doubled the states. Uh, you now have your neighbors. It took us five years longer, but Illinois and uh, Minnesota followed along. Doma has been struck down. And uh, we'll be back in the court soon on our 50 straight strategy, which is coming faster than I ever could have imagined. And my partner, Terry, and I will be getting married this June in Chicago, and handballs, handballs will be on the recipe. Thank you.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Bennett.
1: To see a picture of Jim and Terry on their wedding day, visit themoth.org. And the note: We're happy to say that marriage equality became the law of the land in June of 2015. share any of the stories you hear on the Moth Radio Hour, go to themoth.org, where you can stream the stories for free and send a link to your friends and family. We'll be back in a moment with more stories from this live event in Iowa City. Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison. You're listening to a live Moth event held in Iowa City with the theme "Heart of Darkness." Here's your host, Peter Aguero.
2: Okay, so our next storyteller. Remember, uh, we asked all of our storytellers. Uh, What is it that makes you just say, the horror? (laughs) What puts you into uh, just a a state of madness in which you need to be stopped? She said, you know, when you see somebody and they're folding a map and they're doing it the wrong way? (laughs) And she just, she stopped talking. She just went like this for a second. And I was like, it's okay, you're gonna be all right. So it's uh, folding maps is something that just makes her crazy. Uh, Please welcome our storyteller, Stephanie Summerhill. Come on!
4: Thank you so much. So, I grew up in southern Indiana in the late 1960s to overprotective parents. We were a barely middle-class family living in a not-so-great neighborhood. But my parents wanted the best for me and better than what was in the world around me. So to that end, I led a very sheltered life. I only went to home, school, and church. Uh, At the age of five, I began piano lessons. I could go there. But I could not play with any of the kids in my neighborhood. I could only play in the backyard with my little sister. Now, my mother was a beautiful and elegant woman. She was a bit of a fashionista. She was the kind of lady that would get dressed up to go to the mailbox, and she dressed in the style of Jackie O. Now, my father was an incredible, charismatic person. He had an upbeat attitude and a can-do kind of spirit, and he dressed and moved and looked like Sidney Portier. And I was the center of his universe as he was mine. When I was a little girl, as a toddler, I would, he would dress me up and, go, and I'd go with him on errand day and he would be obnoxious with a camera. He would get total strangers to take pictures of, the, of us together and then he would regale them with tales of my brilliance as a three-year-old. So when I got a little older, I was about eight years old, I became more of a, uh, the son that my father never had, and I spent a lot of time in his study, and we had one of those studies like you saw in the movies. He had a floor-to-ceiling bookcase with the entire Encyclopedia Britannica, and he had a big oak desk with clawed feet, and I used to sit in his lap and he would teach me how to write with a fountain pen. My father had the belief that one of the things that you needed to make your way in the world was a distinctive and impressive signature. So he taught me how to copy his signature with a fountain pen and how to create one of my own, a unique signature of my own. And that's one of the best shared moments that I had with my father. That and the 1976 Summer Olympics, because first of all, it was our first world event together. And for the first time in Olympic history, something had happened that had never happened before. An athlete was awarded a score of a perfect 10. And it was given to Nadia Komenich at the age of 16 for her impressive and flawless gymnastics routine and my father explained to me how difficult that was because the athletes were rated on two different scales. They got a rating for artistic impression and one for technical merit and those were averaged out together to get a perfect score so she had to get a 10 on both both ratings in order to come up with a perfect 10 for a, a, a final score. And when I learned this I became obsessed with the Olympic rating scale, I began reading everything in my life on the on the rating scale. My dad's pancake flipping, his left-hand turns into the driveway, my scales and arpeggios—I could play. This thing took over my life. So, in 1979, I turned 13, and two very important things happened. First of all, I got a summer job, and two, I began to notice boys. Now, this summer job was an early work program because my parents were like overachievers and they wanted me to get started on my job experience and character references. So it was about me and about 19 other 13 year olds. It was about a mix of 10 boys, 10 girls. And our job was to detassel corn, which I'm sure you all know in Iowa. Thank you, hellacious, hellacious job, okay? in the burning hot sun and like, you know, high mud. And so like, after the first week of this, most of the girls cut out. So it was only like like me and one other girl by the end of the week. So I instantly became the center of attention. And the person, one person who became the center of my attention was Robert Buster Townsend III. And Buster, Buster was delicious. He was. He was a fair-skinned, freckle-faced face black boy and he had an athletic build and he was not the brightest bulb on the tree, but I did not care because he could have read a grocery list and I was mesmerized. So, About a week of, like, fishing around with each other and flirting, we finally decided that we liked each other, and that's when Buster first made the attempt to kiss me. Now, I had not had the um, Birds and the Bees speech with my parents yet, and the only things I knew about sex I had gleaned from the Harlequin romance novels that my spinster cousin had left over at my grandma's house. And so the things that I got out of them were this was first of all that all intimate relationships began with a kiss, and according to the writing, all of these women who got this kiss were somehow forever changed. (laughs) Like the, the writing would get all flowery and you wouldn't know what was going on, but that's the only thing you could figure out. So the only thing that I could parallel this with, the only other stories I could parallel this with in my own life that I knew about were Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Those were the only stories I knew where people started out one way and then something happened and they were forever changed. So I figured that if I started to, if I had Buster kiss me, there's something I was going to transform in some way that I could not control. So I just wouldn't let him kiss me. So we went through this whole process where we would, you know, after work we'd hang out in the parking lot and hold hands and flirt and then he'd try to kiss me and, you know, I wouldn't let him kiss me. So one day we're holding hands and my father pulls up into the parking lot kind of early. So I go skipping off and I get in the car and I immediately notice that my dad is really angry and really silent. I could tell something is Going on because he's staring straight out the windshield and he's not looking at me and he's gripping the steering wheel, and so I look over, kind of nervous, and I say, "Dad, is there something wrong?" And my dad erupts into what sounds to me like this loud, long lion roar of a monologue. I saw you talking to these boys. I saw you holding hands with these boys, and he like these big SAT words boys are licentious and nefarious creatures and so now I am both terrified and amazed so he doesn't speak to me for the rest of the you know the rest of the evening and so we get back in the car and he's taking me to work the next day and he's giving me a less vocal rendition of the licentious and nefarious speech but instead of me become, you know, being frightened, I'm starting to get angry. And I'm getting more and more angry to the point where I'm, by the time we get there, I'm kind of pissed off. So I look at him when I get out of the car and I slam the car door. And I turn around and I, that's when I made the decision that I am going to let Buster kiss me. Come with me. I didn't care. Didn't care. So now here it is after work and I'm standing in the parking lot and I let Buster kiss me. And can I tell you, it was the most amazing thing. It was delicious, okay? When our lips met, it was like somewhere in my mind, a door swung open to a room full of incredible sensations. And that room, I realized, was called pleasure. And it was like a a medium-long kiss. But when it was over, Buster's parents were there, and so he, he kind of you know, disappeared, and I'm standing there basking in the glow of this kiss, and I realize that this is a very monumental moment in my life, one that needs to be rated. So I quickly, it does, it does. So I immediately start to rate this kiss, I'm considering its artistic impression and the technical merit, and so I decided, I did, I decided to give Buster a 9.7 for technical merit, and an 8.8 for artistic impression for a combined score of about 9.3, which I thought was good because it left room for improvement, but it was a pretty good kiss. So I had settled all of that in my mind, and then I looked up and realized that I was the only kid left in the parking lot. So I just started to walk home because that's what you did in the 1970s. We didn't have cell phones. You let your kids just kind of wander home. So now I'm walking home and I'm thinking about the consequences of this kiss because now I'm going to be forever changed. So I'm checking myself to see if there's any kind of transformation that's gonna take place and I'm developing contingency plans in my head in case my behavior changes and I can't control it. So this is where my head is at, and finally when I get to the door of my house, before I can barely even knock on the door, my mother opens the door and she says, I need you to help me with your father. And so I go into the living room, and I look, and my father is lying in the fetal position on the couch and he's shaking violently, and we had to take him to the hospital. So we get him um, registered in emergency, and it takes about an hour and a half, and we filled out paperwork. And my father comes back, and he's lying stretched out on a gurney, and he's not quite shaking as much, but he's in a hospital gown. And I look at him, and his eyes are very wide. They kind of remind me of the look that the bunny rabbits have uh, that graze in our backyard. And it was the first time that I saw my father looking so frail. And I said, Dad, are you all right? And with that classic smile and that can-do spirit, he didn't say anything, but he sort of just smiled and nodded. And as they wheeled him away on the gurney, my father's downward spiral begins as he spends 30 days in ICU in a coma and finally dies. And that's when my world began to implode. Because from that day, I never went back to that job. I never saw Buster again and I never had time to process any of this because I was too busy trying to share household responsibilities with my mother while trying to keep up with the expectations of my father. And it doesn't even really hit me until one day I'm 29 years old and I'm on my lunch break and I'm standing in an open air parking garage. And the smell of corn comes wafting in over the whole Ohio River, and it comes back to me, and I start to cry. Because I remember that the last real interaction that I had with my father was when I slammed the car door. And it didn't make me feel very good. I started to feel very guilty. But then the corn also brought back, the smell of the corn brought back the memory of that delicious Kiss, 9.7 for technical merit (laughs) and 8.8 for artistic impression. And even kisses today have a very complex emotional feeling that it brings up inside of me of nostalgia and guilt and pleasure. And it took me a very, very long time. But later, what I realized was this, is that no kiss in the world could ever taint or destroy my father's love for me, or his legacy that lives in me, of his indomitable spirit, his can-do attitude, and his kick-ass signature. Thank you.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, that's Stephanie Somerville.
1: Stephanie Somerville is a musical theater performer living in New York. She's a singer with Secret City, an Obie Award-winning art salon held monthly at Dixon Place. She's also a proud graduate of Sarah Lawrence College and an alum of the New York Shakespeare Festival Lab at the Joseph Papp Public Theater. We'll be back in a moment with our final story from this live event in Iowa City. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is The Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison. You're listening to a live moth event held in Iowa City with the theme Heart of Darkness. As a caution, the next story contains a homophobic
2: slur. Here's your host, Peter Aguero we have uh, one final storyteller this evening and uh when i asked that final storyteller i said uh what is uh something that drives you to the point of madness something that would make you uh you know pull that marlon brando like don't learn your lines you know sit in the mud and be nuts you know kind of kurtz thing uh and our next storyteller uh said uh <laughs> tailgaters because I don't, especially when you can see their teeth in your rearview mirror. Please welcome Janice Josephine Carney. Come on! Okay,
4: thank
5: you. Thank you. Um, my birth certificate said my name was John Joseph, and I was male. That was my problem. As an infant, my mother had me in gowns that had long curly hair. I was my mother's daughter. I was her Josephine. As a young, young child, I enjoyed wearing my sister's clothes and I preferred dresses. My games were hopscotch, jacks, skip and rope. I did not like playing with the t- little toy soldiers or playing with the guns. That was not me. As I got older, and my father and sisters and brothers had seen me dressing up, it was beaten into me that that was not a good thing. And as I got a little bit more older, I learned in school that from teachers and from church, that was not a good thing. So I hid it. Pretty much by middle school and high school, I had a dark cigarette. I knew I was not John, and I knew I was not a boy. But I had it to hide it, so in 1968, I took a draft physical. Then, in 1969, after I, when I was graduating high school, I had the news I was classified 1a. I was fit for military duty. as shocking as it was it was nobody more surprised than me. <laughs> nobody <laughs> And um, I talked to my grandmother a little bit about it. my grandmother. Was from Nova Scotia. Was French Canadian. Spoke mostly French. As a child, she always let me dress the way I want and be me. And uh, she wanted me to go up to Canada. But I went and I decided to confront my father. Uh, I never got into the gender stuff. But uh, I told him I was thinking about going to Canada. That I was trying to avoid the draft. And my father was a, a typical World War II Irish guy, and he went off the deep end and telling me you don't ever let a step foot in his house again you know son of mine if you can't go off to war and just the whole Archie Bunker thing before there was even an Archie Bunker on TV (laughs) he was was there so the very next morning I went out we took the tea down to downtown uh, Boston Cambridge actually and I went into a recruiter's office and I enlisted into the army uh, to get into the medical corps so I could avoid uh, the, the infantry. And uh, July of 70 to July of 71, I wasn't here now, okay, with the 101st Airborne, and I spent some time up along the Laotian border on a fire base. I could talk uh, a lot about that, what it's like being on a fire base that's under attack and surviving an ambush, um, but the biggest thing was coming home Leaning in Seattle and um, I ended up back in Boston, and uh, almost immediately I was back in full femme, hitting the clubs. I was 21 now, so I can get into the good clubs. <laughs> and I was dressing up again, and it, the army didn't change nothing as far as who by gender and who I was. but the struggle the struggle was still there, wanting to fit in, wanting to be wanting to be normal it was Periods around this this time frame, where um, the army doctors had said I had a um, psychotic war neurosis. This is before the term post traumatic stress disorder was used. I was under a lot of different medications. They were trying to treat it with pills pills that make you help you sleep, pills that help you wake up, pills for anxiety, pills for depression. And I tried. I wanted so much to fit in. So I got I got married, which was the I I had three children. Uh, I worked uh, five years at a head job at, at, at Shipyard in Quincy, Mass. Then I got a civil service safe, secure job uh, at the post office. But the image at, at the time of Vietnam veterans all being the enemy, and uh, if you put Vietnam veteran on a job application, you weren't going to get the job. Uh, it was... Uh, There was a lot of shame in being a Vietnam veteran. And I got involved with a veterans support group. And I got to meet a bunch of really, uh, what would have become my closest friends, the only friends. It brought back my pride as a veteran. And I started wearing a Vietnam veterans hat and being proud of who I was. But in the end, um, I I still, I just was this miserable drunk with the home life, I ended up finally that all of this with a suicide attempt. Um, I tr- tried before, but this this time uh, I ended up in a hospital and transferred um, to uh, the Boston VA Hospital. And a woman from my church, uh, who was our our big egg, egg champion came in and visited me in a hospital and bought a friend. Uh, his name was Pat. Pat, I think... Uh, in the long run, I may have saved my life. He got me to a year of sobriety and sanity. A whole year. As long as i had gone out drinking, probably since around middle school. And it, there was this clarity and this sense of who I was. And I uh, was we sitting, he was on his meal route one day. We were, I was meeting him at lunch. And uh, something called a fourth step inventory in the program. Where you look, really look at yourself and try to answer questions, and the two questions we were working on was, do I still feel like drinking, uh, do I still feel suicidal, and I was, yep, yep, both of those, still there, or what can you do to, what can you do to stop those, the cravings, or to stop the suicidal thoughts, as we were sitting there, it was at the end of the winter, a nice warm sunny day, and two young girls came in in these really nice summer dresses, and I'm kind of glaring at them. And uh, they're all excited. They, they're not all bundled up for winter, and they're comfortable with giggling. So he says to Pat, if I could just wear a nice summer f- dress like that, I think I'd be happy, and I wouldn't feel... You know. And Pat put out of a sandwich, a sip of his coffee, and says, go buy a dress, what's your problem? <laughs> my, my AA sponsor. And, uh, didn't bad an eye, and I, I, I was expecting, you know, a total shock and kind of okay. <laughs> uh, he says, "Go buy a dress." We solved this crisis over. <laughs> and it, but it, uh, but it started me. By that time, my marriage was falling apart, and I really was trying to be who I always knew I was. So I went out. I got my ears pierced, and I stopped wearing um, clip-on earrings and just dressing up and painting my nails, shaved my legs, let my hair go down, shoulder length, and I was just out being me. The problem was, well, it's still the birth certificate, but I was going to this veterans group getting more and more effeminate, femi- and these people who, who had brought me back and all, all that pride, the Vietnam veteran, had got me to where I was, suddenly turned on me. Are you queer? Are you you're a faggot, are you going to get your dick cut off? Are you going to get one of those gender realignments? And this was the talking to support group with the facilities there. (laughs) Another part around this time was the VA had a program where you can get a free personal computer. The the idea was that with the computer you could um, send emails and connect with other uh, Vietnam veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and stuff. but the first thing I did was I Googled transgender. This, this new word that was kicking around. Uh, it was no longer just LG, lesbian, gay, and bi. All of a it was a transgender. What, what it actually meant was confusing to a lot of people, even to me. But I found out that was me. Um, but the biggest thing, I found other transgender Vietnam veterans across the country. But I, I like to simplify it. I weed myself a cocoon, and I came out the beautiful woman I always wanted to be. And it's poetic, but it's a little more complex than that, a more complex. But I did it. I really, truly did it. And In the end, I had a letter from the Dr. Bible that said that legally uh, I was female. I fit the criteria. Can I say the V word with your doubts here? I had a vagina. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, um, and I had uh, legally changed my name to Janice Josephine. So I had this beautiful morning when I went into the Cambridge City Hall, I went with my paperwork, and I was presented with a new birth certificate that said I was Janice Josephine Carney, female. And then. Uh, One one last thing. I am, I never could be my father's son, but I am my mother's daughter. I am my mother's Josephine. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Janice Josephine Carney.
1: Janice Josephine Carney lives in Largo, Florida, and is the author of several books, including a memoir about her time in Vietnam. To see a picture of her as a young man in uniform, and then later as a woman at the Vietnam Memorial, visit themoth.org. That's it for the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. And that's the story. From the Moth. Your host this hour was Peter Aguero. The stories in the show were directed by Jennifer Hickson, Maggie Sino, and Meg Bowles. The rest of the Moth's directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, and Sarah Austin Jeunesse, with production support from Whitney Jones and Kirsty Bennett. Moth Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. This Moth event was recorded live in Iowa City by Iowa Public Radio. Our theme music is by The Drift, other music in this hour from Freddie Price, and the As Is Brass Band. You can find out more about all the music we play at our website, themoth.org. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, with help from Vicki Merrick. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.
0: Moth Story Slams are back, held on Mondays, beginning in February. Join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme